Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. They saved our stages, but what about the musicians who lost their jobs and income when the pandemic hit? And closing some of Connecticut's prisons, we talked to the Commissioner of the Department of Corrections about this bold plan. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. When the pandemic hit over a year ago and the world closed down, many people found themselves out of work and no income to pay their bills. One of the hardest hit were musicians, many of whom are self-employed or freelance and didn't fit into the federal or state models for unemployment benefits easily. Undeterred, this group of people in New England took things into their own hands and created the New England Musicians Relief Fund – and I caught up with the Vice President of the Board of the Fund, Hazel Dean Davis, and Connecticut musician and fund recipient Hanif Nelson to talk more about this unique situation. Thanks ever so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Hazel, I want to turn to you first. Can you explain to us a little bit about what the New England Musicians Relief Fund is? Sure, absolutely. So the relief fund really came out of the crisis that ensued when everything shut down last March, actually two Marches ago now in 2020. So I, like all my colleagues, I'm a horn player and like all of musicians across New England and across the country, everything just stopped around March 11th, plus or minus a couple days. And I was actually in the middle of rehearsal and I was sent home with the rest of the orchestra on the break and I have still not played back on stage or with any of my colleagues and it's been over a year. So at the time we thought it was going to be temporary, it pretty quickly it became clear that it was going to be ongoing and that we had a real crisis. Musicians weren't a- many musicians weren't able to get unemployment and the union was trying to, um, to help but but it was way beyond the scope of what they could help with. So. I got together with some of my colleagues, musicians and some executives and some just um, music lovers and we founded the Relief Fund, completely grassroots effort. You know, I learned how to uh, make a website and we just started calling everyone we knew and asking for donations. And we basically took donations in and turned around and sent them right out to musicians who were really struggling just to pay their bills, just to get food on the table and the struggle continues. It's a very audacious project, I'll say that, because your initiative was to reach a half a million dollars by the 13th of March 2021. Now, did you reach that figure? Because I know you've actually given out over $300,000, so you've um, raised a lot of money. Yeah, by the end of uh, March of 2021, we did raise our goal of 500000 which is incredible. And we've given out about 400000 of that, and we are giving out more every week as the need arises. It's really been I- incredible to, to see the support from music lovers, and it feels very lonely being a musician who's used to being on stage but stuck at home. And it's been emotionally powerful to see the music 
community step up and support musicians. Hanif, I want to turn to you now. I mean, you are a recipient of some money from the New England Musicians Relief Fund, but tell us a little bit about, you know, your background. Clearly a very busy man normally, probably still been, you know, relatively busy, but maybe not as much. But what did this mean to you when this all happened and and obviously getting the money from the fund as well? You know, it's a very interesting thing for me because when this started, you know, I'm in my early 40s and I was in graduate school finishing my degree and um, at the same time working professionally as a musician and a composer and, you know, this kind of shuts so many things down. And I think the reality of the situation, which I think a lot of people don't understand, is how little help has really been given towards the practitioners of the arts. And, um, you know, we hear how in this relief package, this you know, I think in this latest relief package, for example, you know, they've earmarked $138 million to help support the arts. Well, that's being distributed through the NEA to a bunch of different organizations. And the likelihood of it actually reaching someone who's employed as a musician is, you know, you're more likely to win the lottery than to get the money from the NEA. You know, it's absolutely true because, I mean, when this all kicked off, obviously, over a year ago, I mean, we saw sort of like small businesses saying, well, you know, yeah, we're applying for these grants, but we're not getting them because the bigger businesses were basically taking all the money and, and getting in there quicker. And, of course, people forget about people who are self-employed or who are freelance for way outside a lot of the criteria for a lot of these government programs. Yeah, and even when you talk about, like, the relief that was offered in terms of when they finally got the whole self-employment, unemployment program up there, which is a federal program, but you don't know until you apply is that the law says you have to go through your state program. And what the state program will do is they will search through to find any W-2 income. You could have worked a temp job three years ago for 10 days, and if they find that income, they'll make you go on that program before you can go on the federal program. And if they renew the state program, then you've got to wait for the state program, even though the federal program as a freelancer is going to pay you more money. You know unless you have this killer job where you can max out unemployment, you live in a state where unemployment is really big per week, which most of us don't. So when this whole thing came along with, with the fund, I found out about it because um, someone from the fund had contacted one of my professors at the time who then gave my information out and I got contacted. I'm looking at this and I'm like, you know, this is great because my mortgage is not taking a break. My bills are not taking a break. My car note is not saying, you know, we feel bad for you, so you don't have to pay anything until the pandemic is over. My son still has needs, you know, and I think what's what's amazing about this fund and having received from it is that, you know, everyone knows that what you receive from this fund is going to be a stopgap for whatever amount of time that that is. But I think what is incredible is seeing how many people are responding and saying, one minute, these people actually have needs too. Not even watch, they have needs, and if we can help fulfill those needs, it's incredible. I mean, it's the essence of the arts and humanity. It's supposed to really bring people together, and as artists and musicians, our, our goal is to express life through the form of art that we choose to express it through, and to see the people responding, you know, back in such a way as where musicians can actually get some sort of help and relief has been amazing. And the thing I think we need to make clear as well here is throughout this entire pandemic, 
it is the arts that has helped so many people get through this, whether it be watching streaming services or being able to, you know, watch um, stuff that was recorded earlier. I mean, people really have relied heavily on the arts. So to hear that you guys and girls were so badly treated and there wasn't anything for you, it's quite alarming to, to hear that because you've been such an essential service to everybody. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the arts and, and music specifically creates the soundtrack to our lives, like even pre-pandemic, right? It's, it's the musicians that you call to play at your wedding. You know, it's, it's the concert you go to to celebrate with your partner. It's the music that you choose for a funeral. It's always there and it's always there to support you. And this is really a unique time when when the musicians are the ones that that need the support and remain mostly invisible. And Hanif, I just want to quickly come back to you as well. Here in Connecticut, of course, we've recently heard from the governor that hopefully by around about May 19th, the state should effectively be almost completely open to, to business again with, you know, a few exceptions. One of the things that you do, the Jazz Mondays event at Black Eyed Sally's in, in Hartford, Connecticut, you know, what, what do you know about that? Will you be going back to that? Can you give us a bit of a sense of how that will be hopefully opening back up for you? You know, I'm going to be talking to the owner about that soon because I know he has some plans as to when he's going to start reintegrating music into his restaurant. You know, and I want to talk to him to see, you know, if his plan is to reintegrate everything right away or if he's going to try to do things face. Because I think what a lot of people are also thinking about is, you know, the government may have everything open, but how many people are going to actually show up? Because there's a lot of people that are, you know, hesitant to show up. There's a lot of people that have not been vaccinated. There's a lot of people that don't want to be vaccinated. So there's like a lot of how many people are going to really show up once things are fully open? I mean, we, we, we'd like to think there's going to be a deluge of people showing up, but we don't really know. But there's one thing I, I do want to also address in that. Hazel was talking about when it comes to the arts and, and it's being both pre-pandemic and during the pandemic, something people rely on. But I've had a lot of time to research, and one of the things that I found out, which I have found rather interesting, is we're not getting paid attention to by the federal government, but yet the arts themselves contributes eight times more to the GDP than the construction business does every year. It contributes five times more to the GDP than transportation services do and infrastructure does. So here are these two large industries that have been getting all kinds of help from the government, but yet the people that have been largely ignored are the people that contribute more to the GDP of this country than these two sectors. So I, I think one of the things that I really want people to understand is that in order for this dynamic to change, we have to understand what it means to actually start engaging in the political process, which is going to our state reps, going to our federal reps, and, and not just demanding change, but literally pestering them until change happens, because that's the only way certain things get done. I mean, the dairy farmers in Connecticut have gotten more money than artists have, and the arts in, G the arts in Connecticut contributes more to the state GDP than the dairy farmers does. You know, so I think I, I, like, what this kind of, you know, receiving this relief has made me do is made me look at, well, who's getting this money and why are we getting the money and why are we being ignored as, as, as artists? And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, in the arts, we don't really have a powerful lobby for us in Washington and in our state houses. And I think that, you know, looking at the Musicians Relief Fund, what they've done and looking at, you know, a lot of these other organizations that are trying to do similar things, out of this, I hope, comes a a new sense of arts lobbying 
that will always have our best interests being portrayed in our state houses and in our federal government as well. One of the things that I know that you want this to do, Hazel, is this will go on beyond the pandemic and, you know, and be a fund for musicians in the future. Absolutely. So one thing that became incredibly clear is that there is no safety net for freelance musicians and nobody steps up when the need arises. I mean, no uh, official people. So our hope is that the New England Musicians Relief Fund can carry on beyond the pandemic and, and be a safety net for, heaven forbid, something similar, shutting down the whole industry again, but also on a smaller scale for an individual or a group of people who are maybe struggling because of a health issue or an instrument gets um, destroyed or any number of reasons that people may find themselves in a financial crisis. Hazel Dean Davis, Vice President of the New England Musicians Relief Fund and Hanif Nelson, a musician, ever so many thanks, as I say, for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And if you're a musician, you can apply for a grant from the fund at nemrf.org forward slash apply. Or to make a contribution to the fund, go to nemrf.org forward slash take action. The prison population of Connecticut has dropped to a 30-year low with less than 9,000 people in the state's various correctional facilities. So what does that mean for inmates as well as the Department of Corrections itself? I spoke with the Department of Corrections Commissioner Angel Kiros recently to find out more. Commissioner, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brian Scott. Appreciate being with you. Fairly recently, the state of Connecticut Department of Corrections sent out a release saying that um, there has been a drop in population in the incarcerated population in Connecticut below 9,000, a 30-year low. And as a result, certain things are going to be happening. Can you talk us through a little bit about that? So as you know, um, our count this morning was a little bit over 8,900. This is the lowest it's been in 32, about 31, 32 years. I will tell you that the shrinking population attribute the reduction to the intakes at the front end of the system and then focusing on the collaboration with the front end system and diversionary programs where individual instead of being sent to a county jail or diverted to a program and just with those charges that were low misdemeanor charges and misdemeanor charges so that definitely helped out in the front end of the of the system in addition during the pandemic our parole officers did an amazing job helping the individuals going back into society transition and finding creative ways and to helping them, even when they got into trouble. And returning them back to custody was like a, as a last resort. For example, if there was an individual that called the parole officer and he or she was having a drug issue, um, using drugs, instead of bringing that individual in, we would bring that individual into a program so that avoid bringing that individual back into the prison. As you know, the reduction in the population was very helpful during the pandemic for us, for providing us a necessary base for a medical isolation unit and quarantine units at each facilities, as well as the social distancing that we try to maintain both for the staff and the offenders, and particularly the individuals in our custody in the living quarters and so forth. So the reduction, it was a significant reduction. Based on that significant reduction has allowed us to start a process with the facility closures. When I spoke to you previously, Commissioner, you talked to us about closing certain facilities. You weren't able to give details back then, but you have 
given at least one indication of one establishment that will be closing. It's uh, uh, colloquially referred to as the Supermax facility, which is Northern Correctional in Somers. Yes. Tell us about that. And I mean, it doesn't have a huge capacity. So what will happen to the prisoners that are actually held there? Because according to the press release, you're planning to close that in July of this year. So as of right now, we're in the process of identifying the, the uh, facilities that these individuals will be going into. It will be a maximum facility. Those are the options. So I got McDougal Walker, I got Cork and Wigowski, I got Gardner CI and Cheshire CI. Those are the four uh, maximum facilities that this population, decision will be made of where this population is going. In addition, we need to prioritize training for the staff in the new facilities they're going to be receiving these individuals and that is going on right now and there's some additional uh, cosmetic that we're doing into the housing units to prepare for the move but we're on track to move our staff have been given their new work assignment and new locations of where they're going to be working once july 1st comes what happens commissioner once the northern correctional when the building is closed down what happens to that building i i, I take it it's still so like state property i mean what's going to happen to it it still will be it will remain a state property. What happens is that the the warden, the deputy warden, and a couple of maintenance staff will stay behind, and they'll start the process of of uh, um, closing down that facility, inventory completion, the packing of all the um, law books and documentations, and, and moving them to a different location. So there is still some work, probably about a month or two, that that warden, that deputy warden maintenance will be um, behind once the population leave. I have no intention of utilizing Northern for anything else when it comes to housing offenders. So. Um, Hopefully we'll lock the door and that will be the end of Northern. Just very briefly, I mean, do you know what will happen? Is there any plan for the building? I mean, like you said, once you so like lock the door and the facility is no longer in use, I mean, is it? do you know if it's the state's intention to sell off the property? I mean, do you have any like eyeballs on that at all? That'll become very difficult because uh, Northern is right on the same compound as an Osborne Correctional Facility. So I cannot see another, um, say you sell a bit, uh, building and a business come in. You, you cannot have a, a company, a private company or public company right in the same compound as Osborne CI. They're right there connected. They're probably not even a uh, hundred yards of football field length from one another. And with all the prisons, ultimately, I mean, OK, we're just talking about one at the moment, but there is a suggestion that a few other facilities will be closed down as, as a result, obviously, with the drop in prison population. What does that mean for the, the budget for DOC? So as of now, for the budget year FY 21, 22 and 22, 23, the projected savings are still reflect on our budget at the end. Uh, once the facility closures are closed, OPM will remove that money away from our uh, from our budget. Our budget will reflect the savings and the closure of uh, three facilities at that time. There has been calls for any so like um, savings from obviously the budget for that money to possibly be redirected to so like social service programs. Do you agree with that? Is that something that you feel will be beneficial? You know, as a commissioner of correction, I need to advocate for any programmings that will be beneficial to the population I serve that will help them to transition out into the community. But I do understand that the governor and OPM have a tough task on hand with the COVID-19 pandemic and economy. That it's going to be a very hard decision for them to make, for the governor and OPM to make on 
where the actually the uh, um, savings will go to. I'm hopeful, but do I, I do understand that they have a very tough job when it comes to balancing the budget and where that saving is going to go to. Are there other areas out in the community that need it more than the population that I serve? I want to quickly pick up with you with regards to telephone calls for prisoners, you know, communicating with loved ones, etc. During, obviously, in the continuation with COVID, I understand that DOC were looking into and also implemented the use of things like iPads and other digital devices for prisoners to get communicating again, because obviously visitation was not allowed at various prisons. What's the situation there? Has that gone well? Right now, we're at McDougal Walker. We hit a couple of roadblocks with the technology, um, some security breach with the system. So we had to put a pause to it until the vendor was able to correct the um, breach. And then we're back out at McDougal Walker. The 1,600 individuals under my custody do have the uh, tablets. They're called tablets, not iPads, tablets. And within this tablet, there's uh, an iMessaging where an individual for 20 cents can send a message similar to a text message to a loved one and uh, around three pages long far as text and then that individual within a couple of days uh, uh, will get that text and then the individuals from the outside can send an iMessaging back to the incarcerated individual for 20 cents. The key thing here is that the state does not earn any commission on this function. Uh, so strictly the 20 cents goes straight to the vendor and the Department of Correction or the state of Connecticut does not receive any commission uh, on this function. In addition, we, we had a rollout of the um, team social visits platform. And since October, when that um, launched out, we've had over 10,000 social visits on teams and from individuals, not just in the state of Connecticut, across any area of the world. There had been criticism in the past about the cost of the telephone calls, obviously, before this digital equipment was brought in. And I know that I believe the DOC was looking to try and reduce the cost of those calls. So it wasn't so sort of like uh, expensive for inmates. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, in the governor's budget, there's a line item where the governor has assigned $1 million to CSSD to compensate for some of the salaries of the probation officers, basically four cents cheaper per minute starting this July 1st. So it's, it's a step in the right direction. Some advocates and some of our elected officials are, um, there's some bills on free phone calls for the individuals. I support a decrease in the cost of the incarcerated. If we get to where it's free, that would be great. But what just with the understanding that uh, there's nothing free, the state will have to pay for these phone calls to the vendors and then the state will have to determine how these uh, free phone calls will be funded. So uh, so I do support it. If we get to where it's free, that'll be great for the families. But with, the, with understanding that uh, um, it's really not free, it's going to cost the state, it's going to cost us taxpayers and that money has to be allocated in order for us to pay the vendors. There has been various coverage in the media about the use of solitary confinement in uh, Connecticut's prisons and a push to end it. What's your view on this matter? I've been in uh, communication with elected officials and members of this solitary confinement movement. My job is simple. My job is to keep the people safe and includes the people that are incarcerated under my population and then to keep a community safe when these individuals go back out into the community. I'm committed in revising our restrictive status that will mean enhancing the programming component, they're increasing out of cell time, they're reducing the overall length of time and the status, reduction in the use of restraints. But, uh, I, but I need to be very careful 
on how these changes are made in order to ensure the safety of everyone. As a commissioner, I need to prepare for the worst case scenario. I need to have the tools available that's going to deter uh, misbehavior. But I also understand I have a responsibility to ensure that we deliver programs to help these individuals once they leave our agency, that they're productive out in the community. I can tell you that uh, Connecticut is a national leader in this category, and we rank among the top five of the states relying on the, on the least on administrative segregation, which is the highest level of supervision. And we deserve the status for the most um, serious act of violence. But just to be clear, and a final point on this, as Commissioner of the DOC, with regards to solitary confinement only being the question here, you are in favour of at least talking and reviewing the situation, correct? Oh, absolutely. I've always been very clear that uh, no matter how difficult a conversation gets with an elected official or any advocacy group, that I'm always going to be at the table and I'm always going to listen to uh, my staff to the advocacy group, to elected officials, and to the individuals under my uh, um, supervision, and then make a decision. So that's absolutely. Angel Kiros, Commissioner of the Department of Corrections in Connecticut, as always, thank you ever so much for speaking to us on Connecticut East this week. Thank you, Brian Scott. Appreciate it. Green Valley Tree LLC is proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week. Contact Green Valley Tree LLC for all your tree removal and plant health care needs and more. Find us at GreenValleyTreeWorks.com or call 860-234-4041. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently, sponsored by... The Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling is a nonprofit organization which, through advocacy, prevention, and education, is here to support individuals and families who are impacted by problem gambling. Our helpline, 1-888-789-7777, is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We also have live chat and tech support through our website, www.ccpg.org. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, after more than half a million Connecticut residents lost their jobs amid the COVID-19 pandemic, the state's Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund was in need of financial assistance. Over the course of the current recession, Connecticut has borrowed more than $712 million, a debt that will need to be repaid with interest. And the trust fund has been insolvent for 48 of the last 50 years. Governor Lamont, alongside leaders from business, labour and the legislature, announced a bipartisan proposal to bring the Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund to solvency. This bipartisan deal does not tap federal relief funds, but it does lower taxes on 73% of the state's businesses while raising taxes on larger businesses with more frequent layoffs. In the day this week, Jennifer Rosotti, who played a prominent role in leading UConn to its first NCAA Women's Basketball Championship in 1995, has been named president of the Connecticut Sun team. Mohegan Sun made the announcement recently and Rosotti will be formally introduced during a press conference on Tuesday, April 27th. Rosotti will be responsible for the overall business operations and marketing strategies of the Mohegan Tribe-owned WNBA franchise that plays its home games in Mohegan Sun Arena. The position was previously held by Amber Cox, who left over the winter to become CEO of the expansion Kansas City franchise in the National Women's Soccer League. In the Norwich Bulletin this week, during a recent Norwich City Council meeting, the city unanimously approved the Business Master Plan District Ordinance. The ordinance allows a new kind of zoning in the city and allows Norwich to have more control over what kinds of business developments come into town. 
The business master plan district was proposed by the Norwich Community Development Corporation as a floating zone that could be applied to large contiguous tracts of land suitable for development as a business park. The land must be at least 100 acres and able to have appropriate road access and either underground or on-site utilities. The city is aiming to use this zoning to develop a possible second business park that would sit in the Taffil and Ockham area on parts of Scotland Road, Lawler Lane, Canterbury Turnpike and Bromley Lane. The Norwich Community Development Corporation is paying deposits on and has until December 15, 2022 to purchase the 272 acres for $3.55 million. In the Middletown Press and a pivot from a cautious message to residents about COVID-19 safeguards, Governor Lamont announced recently of plans to lift nearly all COVID-19 restrictions next month, sent a signal that Connecticut may have weathered the worst of the pandemic. Turning to progress with vaccinations and evidence that infections remain low in Connecticut, Lamont said the state was headed for a new normal, with little government restrictions except masking indoors. The plan calls for lifting all outdoor restrictions on May 1st and then eliminating all remaining restrictions except the requirement that people wear masks indoors on May 19th. And in next week's Connecticut East this week. Moving on to higher education as a student can be stressful at the best of times. So what if you identify as LGBTQIA? What questions should you be asking of the colleges and schools you want to go to? We speak with Scott Garbini, a college consultant and life skills coach, for the answers. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week, where you can also listen to the show again on demand. And please like, follow and share on your social media platforms too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening. Music